You're listening to the 30th episode of the National Centre for Writing podcast with me, Simon Jones. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. Conveniently for the 30th episode, it's Wednesday 30th of January here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. And this week I'm very excited to be joined by the inimitable Tim Clare. I first talked to Tim over a year ago, back before this podcast went weekly. You'll be hard pressed to find someone who is more passionate and driven about writing than Tim. That enthusiasm manifests in Tim's weekly writing workout newsletter, as well as the Couch to 80k Writing Bootcamp, both of which are entirely free. Do check them out. Tim is of course also an author, having published The Honours back in 2015, and with his follow-up The Ice House due out this year. What follows is a conversation in which we talk about all of those things, as well as the word count required for reaching the optimum point of neuroplasticity, what Tim learned while talking to the Institute for Procrastination Research, and how the same part of your brain is used for processing fiction and reality. It's a big old chat, so we'd best get on with it. So yeah, thanks for coming in, Tim. Um, you came on the show about a year ago That's right. uh, when you were talking about the Couch to 8K series. So it's really good to have you back. Um, and it's kind of well-timed, I think, because you just announced the ACE funding yeah. for Couch to 8K version 2. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the Couch to 80K Writing Bootcamp, for people who don't know, is an eight-week writing course by podcast, which takes about 10 minutes a day. Well, it asks 10 minutes of writing for you a day, quite strictly, actually timed 10 minutes a day. Um, that I did, that I recorded in the gap while I was waiting to see whether I'd sell my second uh, novel. Um, and I just put it together sort of, I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds crazy to say, but like on the spur of the moment really, I was like, oh yeah, yeah I'll do that because I got poor impulse control. And then I announced it before I'd recorded any of it. So I was committed to recording eight weeks worth of stuff. And now I've taught lots before. I've taught lots of workshops, all different levels, but I'd never done something like that before. And so obviously, because who has? And, and, then, and then it turned out, for reasons that I don't fully understand yet, to be wildly popular, the most popular thing I've ever done. Um, it got featured on, I think like the key moment was when it got featured on Lifehacker, which I hadn't heard of before, but it's like a lifestyle blog um, that's got like about four million odd followers on Twitter. So they did an article about it, and then the podcast was getting like 20,000 downloads a week. Um, and but I'm still like, and now it's like a year later, and the podcast has had over a quarter of a million downloads last year. Um, I still get messages every day from people who are working through the eight week course because I guess I just, I guess I just exist in their ear like every day. So anyway, that's the background to it. And I just thought, what are the chances that around kind of like looking after my daughter, in some cases, some episodes are like recorded while I'm pushing my daughter in the buggy. Um, what are the chances that the first time I have a go at this completely unplanned, I have created an unimprovable creative writing course? And I like to think, 
as much as this idea of like capturing lightning in the bottle is one that we kind of like glom onto as creatives, this idea that, oh, inspiration strikes. I was like, actually, I bet if I did it a second time or I do something bigger and better, I can do a better job of it. I bet I can learn something from all these hundreds and thousands of people who've got back to me to tell me this is their experience of it. So I'm making a second one. It's going to be longer. Um, it's probably going to be, I reckon it's going to be like a hundred days uh, or like a hundred sessions to take people. And the Couch to 80K, right, in boot camp, right? One, it's not a boot camp in any, it's the opposite of that is my philosophy. So one, the, that me calling it a boot camp was just me trying to be make it sound snazzy it's not it's and so i want to rename it like a workout or something like that and secondly i would like to actually take people because the first one gets you just match fit to write a novel and then people were sending me heartbreaking emails going oh, i'm going to really miss having you in my ear every day Heart, heartbreaking slightly creepy <laughs> emails and i just would like to do something that actually goes the full distance and actually has episodes and actually takes someone through the entire process of writing a novel and maybe even has some stuff about editing at the end so we do the whole let's like actually do the whole thing so that is my plan it's very big it doesn't exist uh and so it could i could completely fall flat on my face but um, Asa really kindly kind of like uh, underwriting my ability to actually put some serious time into it. Yeah. But again, you've announced it before you've done it, just like before, and that seemed to work out pretty well the last time. Yeah, it, yeah, it did, yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm announcing it before because to actually give people a chance to give me feedback before I start doing it, to people who are kind of graduates of the course um, to give me feedback before I get stuck in uh, because that's really helpful and I'm, I think it's important to just like listen to people and try and synthesize some of their experiences and since then also recording the podcast I've interviewed dozens of writers with all this stuff in mind I've finished a second book and I'm at least half I like to think over halfway through a third uh, I've now started speaking to social psychologists and neuroscientists about the process of writing, what happens in the brain, the psychology behind it, stuff about habits and how we develop them, and motivation. And so I've got all this new information, some of which just actually just jives with stuff that I was doing intuitively anyway, which is nice, but now I can kind of put some science to kind of back it up. So hopefully it's just going to be bigger and better. That's, that's my, my, my actual goal is to make this, make the best free writing resource that exists in the world. That, that would be what I want to do. I am sure I will fall short of that lofty and incredibly arrogant goal, but um, I, it's going to be the best that I can possibly do. It's going to be professional quality and something that people can fit around their lives. So 10 minutes you know, 10 minutes a day, everyone can find 10 minutes a day, right? Yeah, and it's going to be podcast form? Again. Yeah, it's going to be podcast form. So basically, um, you, you press play. Um, the timer for the creative writing exercise is in the episode. So I'll say start now and then I'll say stop. Um, the one piece of feedback that I'm going to incorporate is have a slightly gentler outro um, when I announce that the time's up because the number of people who've said that they've dropped their pen or worse, um, when, I, when I get to the end of the 10 minutes and I go, time's up! So many people, so many people, it's really scared them. So I'm going to have probably sort of gently kind of like fading up birdsong. Um, but I just, I'm, 
it's you listen to the episode. So all you need to do is sit down and have a pen or something to write on and just listen to the episode and follow the instructions. Because so many people think they don't have good willpower and they don't set up an environment that makes it easy. And so I'm just, and then it's because I get emails every week from people going, I'm doing it. I'm right doing a put, put th- your course and I haven't written for ages. Um, I haven't written for years. I didn't think I could write anymore. I didn't think I was allowed to write. I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't think I had enough discipline. All these words like discipline and stuff that you're supposed to do as a writer, I didn't think I had the discipline. And now I'm writing all the time and it's easy. And it is easy and this isn't something, this isn't because I've got some magic touch. It's because people have been coming from it from the entirely wrong direction and all I'm doing is setting up an architecture. I'm setting up like, you know, like when you're cutting a piece of wood, you set up a jig and you just run the blade, the saw along the jig and it kind of cuts along that line. That's all we're doing is we're setting that up so you just cut along the line and then it's like, oh, you, I cut a straight line. Well, it's not because you've ama- you got an amazingly steady hand, it's because you brace the saw against this big piece of metal, right? That's all I'm doing is setting it up. All the stuff that doesn't need to be difficult, we set up in advance and then it's easy. It's funny because you say it's like the most popular thing you've ever done and it kind of surprised you, but I think when I first found out about it, it was it's one of those ideas that in retrospect seems so obvious that it is amazing no one's done it before. And the fact that you know exactly how much time you're committing because it's in the, the playback time of the yeah. episode. Uh, it, it just, yeah, it makes so much sense. Yeah, I think, so the history of creative writing pedagogy or contemporary creative writing pedagogy has, like I think one of the most influential creative writing authorities was Dorothea Brand, who wrote in 1934, um, Becoming a Writer, it was her big book on that. And she says you should rise an hour, uh, a half an hour or an hour earlier than you customarily do and write what she called morning pages, where you allow the, the, the mind to just flow. And that was taken on, uh, that, that morning pages were like reintroduced um, in uh, the writer's way. That, the artist's way, that's what it's called, the artist's way, as this thing where you sit down and you write three, you should write three pages. Now, what I would say about arising an hour earlier than you customarily do each day and writing for an hour is it sounds good, but I have a two-year-old daughter <laughs> and if I rose at the hour earlier than I customarily do, I would meet myself going to bed. Like, and, and who, how, to whom does that sound like an attractive prospect? Getting up an hour earlier every single day and writing, Oh, I feel great. I feel so good. You won't do it after three days. Why would you? Why would you? Now, I will. I think it's worth noting that Dorothea Brand was an overt um, and proud fascist. Was the one of the? She married one of the predominant figures in American fascism in the nineteen thirties and wrote for the National Review. So, so maybe that is why. So, are uh, the basis for modern cre- creative writing? pedagogy was was created by a fascist is it any wonder that it feels slightly authoritarian and we are looking at every turn 
to to duck out of it and 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 find ways of not engaging with it because we treat creative writing you've got to have discipline i'm going to make people tell me all the time i've got to make myself right i've got to knuckle down i've, I've got to do it all these terms these oughts these shoulds this um what was referred to i believe in um the uh, foundational text of um cognitive behavioral therapy feeling good as uh, masturbation but like this idea that you have to do stuff and of course then that create generates resentment it generates feelings like i don't want to do this so you don't and then and then you feel guilty and awful and it's like has it never occurred to anyone to make writing feel like this exciting just to make it feel sexy make it feel like something that you want to do that you want to sneak time in to do because if you do that it'll be easy that's i don't under that is it's crazy to me that that is such a revolutionary idea it's that kind of notion of the suffering artist isn't it that if you're not suffering then you're not a proper artist and kind of having to get up an hour earlier you know i've got a six-year-old so i know exactly what you're talking about but you know you're making the experience unpleasant before you even get to putting any words down yeah and, and don't get me wrong like i um i, I, I i've got as much self loathing uh, uh, as the next uh, hair suit bespectacled uh, mid-30s uh, guy who sometimes thinks too much. Like, I, like I, 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 I enjoy going in cold showers. Uh, earlier, you know, the beginning of this week was my birthday and my idea of fun on my birthday was on the, on the 7th of January going and swimming in the sea. It was, it was agony. It was so cold. It was painful, but it felt great, right? And there was something about like slightly depriving myself and going and doing that that I enjoyed. I don't have, I understand the push towards that, but actually, you know what it is? It's setting this big, like, we think we're going to change our lives through these great kind of like Herculean effort where we change the, um, and we, 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 underestimate actually how difficult it is to make those changes. We're going to make these huge lifestyle changes. We can't sustain them. You, you, you might change for a day or two and it feels amazing. Like you go and run, you do all this. Thing. And actually, we secretly, we've set it up so we don't, we don't do that. So we don't have to stick to it because the actual much scarier thing is putting in a tiny bit of time each day and finally finding out if you can or can't write. If you make writing to, to seem like this thing that requires your whole soul kind of like if you if you feel like it's going to be you like shrugging on a bearskin and marching up the mountain as the kind of like the wind blows round you and and you kind of and and you're going to struggle against it and it's going to be the hero's journey then you have created quite a good excuse to not do it who would blame you for stepping back be kind to yourself go on be kind to yourself you don't have to do it writing can be it can be your, your dirty little pleasure. It can be this thing that you do because you go, oh, yeah, I'm going to sit down. Oh, well, I've got five minutes. I'm going to write something quickly. Or I'm gonna, I've got, you're going to make sure, you're going to create this habit architecture around you where writing, there's going to be books all over the house, open little notepads where it's just going to be like a thousand biscuit tins around you that you just kind of constantly want to go and dip your hand in and have, what, have one. Like, and, and you can create that with writing. Instead of being this thing that you're like, oh, I haven't written today, God, it can be like you sit down in front of the TV and you just get your notepad out and you write something because you're just 
because it's nice, it feels nice. Yeah, and your, your little 10 minute exercises, because they're fun and they're quite surprising often as mm -hmm. well. Um, like when you, you start it and what you end up with at the end of those 10 minutes is not what you expected. Um, but oh. all these little bite-sized bits so that every time you do it, it is surprising and quite delightful. It's awesome. That's why I love teaching creative writing workshops. And that's where a lot of it's come out of, right? That you do those 10 minute exercises. You do an exercise. Instead of saying to people, you can write and here's some theory. And I do do that as well. But like as soon as you actually just get people writing, and then 10 minutes is finished and you go, well, let's look at what we've done. There's stuff that you can't predict and it was in there. And with that time pressure and me being a bit like a kind of slightly pushy middle-class dad taking you out on a nature walk and being like, come on, let's fresh air. And you kind of go along, you go, All right. but then you go on and then 10 minutes later, you kind of like your lungs are kind of like open and you're feeling quite good because you're outside and you've just seen a peregrine falcon and you go, oh, and then it's like, what have we just done in the last 10 minutes? And then you're like, actually, maybe, maybe I'm quite into this actually. <laughs> That's the thing is people don't realize that they're actually awesome at this stuff. And they've got a bunch of unexamined assumptions about how good they are at writing, how creative they are. Now look, there, there, is some, there are some really into my kind of like uh, neuroscience babble at the moment, but there's like, there are some uh, organic kind of like uh, step changes that, that happen that you can make your brain more or less, have more or less of an aptitude towards creativity? Absolutely. And those things take weeks. You know, you were looking at kind of like an eight week, eight weeks is about the, the length of a, quite a lot of the trials about, you know, actual uh, neuroplasticity and changing the actual shape of your brain to make these things easier. So sure, like there, it takes a, it can take a while to turn the ship around. But again, that is habit energy. That is about doing your 10 minutes a day and then sleeping in between to allow the brain to change. And, and, and that is, it has to be little and often, not these great kind of like um, binges that we try and make ourselves do and so for me that's what's so exciting about it is doing those workshops and you, you would have had this as well you've been in a writing workshop and people produce stuff and it's just stuff that didn't exist before that's that's the juice for me that's what's creative writing is so exciting it's not producing stuff ex nihilo right but it, you are creating stuff that didn't exist before and as soon as you do that that is such a positive feedback loop. That's so addictive. That's so fun. Who wouldn't want to go and do it again? Who wouldn't want to? Because it's not, can you do this well? Don't care about that. It's like, what is going to come out? And that spirit of curiosity, what am I going to write? Oh my gosh, I've written about this guy. We're not interested in if it's good. No one cares about that. We're interested in who's here, what character is going to spring out, what words are going to come out. That's exciting. Yeah, and it's the difference between like if, if you're trying to write anything, I'm going to write a novel. Like a novel is this scary giant thing, whereas these little 10 minute exercises are a great way to get started. Hence, couch to 80k, just like the couch to 5k running things, where you look at 5k running and you think, I can never do that. But I could go for a little jog just down the road for a bit. And then, yeah, it builds it up after a while. I'm going to write a novel is like a fundamentally unexecutable command to give your brain. You, nobody can, I'm not, I'm not being cute here either, like nobody, you cannot write a novel. 
You can write a sentence. And you know, this is what when I spoke to Dr. Tim Pitchell, who is the has worked for 20 years as the head of it sounds funny every time I say, but he's the head of the Institute for Procrastination Research. <laughs> um, I, I know, right? But like I spoke to him about procrastination and he was talking about how you have if you if you say I'm going to sit down and write my novel, you're like, like, like you say, it's really big, but also it's not a command that you can execute. There's, the, what you can do is you can open your laptop. You can open Word. What's the next key thing? That was like one of his key insights. He's like, you've got to actually put it in terms that your conscious mind that you can execute. What's the next thing I need to do? I need to open my laptop and switch it on. I need to switch on Word. I need to get a new file or the file I'm working on. Right, okay, that's there. Now, I need to reread the paragraph. Have I reread the paragraph that I was working on yesterday? Now I need to type a, 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 a word. I need to type a letter. Like, I'm gonna write two sentences. You can, write a sentence is an executable command. Write a novel isn't. And that's why we get blocked, because you're asking yourself to do something that is impossible. It's an abstraction. And I know it sounds like I'm being precious or tricksy or cute, but I'm not. Because when you don't do that, I'm speaking from with the kind of like zeal of Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas Day, slightly because after having that conversation with him in end of September, in the next like two months, I wrote 50,000 words of novel. Like, it's, and it was easy. It was so easy. Because it's just like... It sounds dumb, but like those things hold you back. And as soon as you're like, I've just got to, I've got to, have I switched my laptop on? Well, that's why I'm procrastinating. Is Word open, right? That's why I'm procrastinating. Is the file open, right? That's why I'm procrastinating. And now have I written a word, right? That is, it's so easy. It's, it, I, I, yeah, I know it sounds, I, I know I sound slightly fanatical about it, but I just see the difference it makes in my life, the sudden just, disappearance of creative anxiety and um, I get emails from people all the time I'm kind of at the end of this kind of fire hose of people going oh <laughs> oh <laughs> and it's hard not to feel like this is an epidemic I think because I'm like I'm kind of like creative writing cop right like I only see like the bad cases where writing goes wrong like people don't people don't write to me when they're having a good time right like but I see the difference it makes in people's lives when they apply these things and you know what it feels like when you write something and it's good. When you're writing, you're working on your story, it feels really. You feel it generates happiness in your life. Well, I think that's an important thing, and it's something I care about. Mm. I'd say creative writing cop feels like another show you should try and get some funding for. Oh, I'd love it. <laughs> it's that, yeah. It would. It would be. It would be. It would be so. It would be so good. And like so many places where people go on creative writing retreats would, would be excellent for murder mysteries as well. Like you've already got like an isolated community, right? So yeah, uh, on your continuing mission to get everyone to write more, uh, you've also just started doing uh, hashtag weekly writing workout Andy. because the podcast wasn't enough no. and you had, to, you had to do more. Yeah, I mean, like, the creative writing exercises, like, I'm coming up with them all the time, and I do do quite a lot of creative writing teaching, and I care about it, and I'm thinking about it, and I used to, like, 
I used to like read creative writing manuals on the loo when I was a kid and stuff. Like I, I, I've always cared about it and I'm, it's just something that I'm naturally doing and into all the time. So coming up with the, it's a mail, like, so week, weekly writing workout is a mailing list that people can sign up to. You just sign up and every Friday I put out a new, it's kind of like the, like a weekly text version of the, Couch to 80k bootcamp, um, but modular rather than building up to, to in one direction. So it's a 10 minute creative writing exercise every Friday. Just pop drops in, you just set a timer on your phone for 10 minutes, read the text, it's normally like two or three paragraphs, and then just do the thing for 10 minutes, alarm goes, you're done. That's it. There's a there's a hashtag if people want to share their experiences of doing it. Some people last week were sharing pieces they'd written or just saying, oh, I just did this or sharing their experience of writing it. So there's the option of like looking at how other people are doing it and kind of having that community as if it were a workshop. Um, but you can also just work through them at your own pace. It's just giving people a chance to have an easy win each week. We under, I, un, people underestimate that. It's like, oh, you got, have you, how much have you written on your work in progress today? I did 2,000 words. Don't worry about that. It's like, did you, can you put 10 minutes into your creative writing notebook today? Can you, can you do that? Like this week, can you do it this week? Do one thing. That's all you need to aim for. Once you crack that, then it's less intimidating to do any of the other stuff. But so, so often when we get blocked, we end up like making the terms of our re-engagement with creative writing. I'm going to like take this day off and then I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I've, I've booked this week off work and I'm going to start writing. And it's just a horrible pressure to put yourself under. And I just think if it's 10 minutes, you can just be, you can, you can be ready to go to bed and go, God, I haven't written in three weeks. God, I feel a bit, feel a bit bad. I feel a bit sticky. Uh, well, this, okay, I'm going to spend 10 minutes doing this and then I'll go to bed. And then you go to bed and you've won. You've won the week. <laughs> that, that, and those things, once you hit one of those things, the thoughts that they generate tick over and tick over and tick over for days and days and days and days. Like you're, it's, a, it's a very small kind of like reorientation of yourself. So that, that's what, of, of course, I'm going to be banging the drum for my own thing. But I wouldn't do it. I'm not doing it for... This is the thing is, it's not part of like some great media exercise where it's great... People go, oh, it must be great promotion for your books. Not really. Like, I, I, think it's pe I think people are interested in me as a creative writing teacher, but it doesn't necessarily make people go and read my writing. They're not coming there for that. They're coming there for their own writing. Um, I do it because it's incredibly rewarding and because it works and because people message me and go, I'm writing a thing at the moment. And that is just so exciting to me. It's really, and it's been inspirational to me actually. And it's helped me do my own writing because I, like, any, like, you know, like anyone, if you have to explain what you do to someone else, you get a greater understanding of why you do it and how you do it. And that has helped me with my own writing. So I think like writing these exercises weekly just gets me once a week to reflect on creative writing. Or I go, God, how can we think about, how can we think about characters like status in a scene where one character has a higher status than the other. What are my thoughts on that? And how, if I was going to write about that and train that one aspect, like here's a low status character, here's a high status 
character. And at one point in the scene, their two roles are going to flip. What does that look like? And what's the thing that makes their statuses flip? That to me is really interesting. And then it makes it, that feeds back into my writing and makes my writing less dreadful. Yeah. And uh, the first one that went out last week, uh, just as an example for people so they know if this is something they want to sign up to. Hmm. The first one was to write a, a New Year's resolution list from a character's perspective. And that was about all the instruction you gave, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just... In, it's a really odd thing to... to encourage writers. I'm trying to think of a better phrase that I want to say than for writers to sort of go all floppy. But it's that thing of, like, when you're writing a character, especially in creative writing exercise, give yourself permission to not know where you're going with something. I guess it's kind of like I'm reverse engineering a lot of stuff that's just like foundational principles of improv. But a lot of first drafts are kind of like text improv, right? You Just writing a character, writing this list of, say, for in this example, writing a list of New Year's resolutions, where slowly by reading the list you get a sense of who this person is. Not thinking of the character first, but allowing the character to be revealed to you just by writing stuff in this kind of subconscious way, not thinking about it too much. It's quite a difficult thing to describe to people something that, as a writer, and it's been, that's been one thing I've immediately learned from doing it, is reflecting on something that is, seems obvious to me, but only because I've done it for years and I've forgotten that I had to learn it, which is doing that thing where you sort of just go, I'm just going to start writing and see what I write. Because I know that sounds precious and it sounds like semi-mystic to go, I'm going to write and see what comes out. But it's kind of like, okay, so what could be a resolution? And then I guess you make up another one without really thinking about it. And I was really influenced actually by, I got, I get lots of different people on the podcast and I had Grant Howitt, who's a role-playing game uh, designer and writer on the show to talk about like live you know role tabletop role playing and how which is a form of just storytelling in communal improv right and he was i was talking about how he creates characters and he said instead of giving someone's character like a big backstory like you are thug from the kingdom <laughs> of Krull who has traveled many moons across the you know to avenge the death of your father instead he'll go like okay so your character he'll just give them one piece of inventory like, you've got in your backpack your mother's second best sword. And he's like, and I feel like we just find out about the character from that. It's like, second best sword. So who got, who got the first best? <laughs> Do you have like an older sibling who's the favourite and you're having to prove? So all of those, anything where you just put down mysteries and clues and you make stuff up creates questions in the brain. And as soon as you're in that mode of going... Why has this dude got like a Satsuma and a voodoo doll in their bag, right? Why do, why, who needs those two things? The brain will just leap into the breach and, and build connections between those things. And then, it's, and then you go, oh, I'm creative. Well, it wasn't that you weren't before. It's just you weren't setting your... You were looking for ways to not fail instead of coming up with 20 answers why this person has got like a, 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 a bowie knife, a length of kite string, and some bunting from a summer fate. Like, you, 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 
characters just flow out of those things and we don't even, as human beings, we're built to fill in the gaps and intuit. Like that's how the brain is, is made. And it's easy and second nature to us. We've just got to set it up right. Yeah, it's that difference as well, isn't it? It's like, like we were saying earlier about the kind of monolithic novel thing that you can't possibly wrap your head around. And if you expect to know all your characters in, intimately before you even start writing them, it, you're never going to get to actually writing them. And sometimes the most satisfying moments when you're writing is when a character just suddenly does something or discovers something or you find something out about the character as you're going. And that, the need to plan everything perfectly before you go is just another way of not doing it. Yeah, I mean, like, I would say some people do plan all their novels before they, they, they write them, and I think those novels are often quite drab and dead and predictable because they then write them and the characters do exactly what they imagined the characters would do when they didn't know the characters very well because they hadn't written about the characters. And so and those are the novels that you read and the character would go, he could phone the police, but no, they would only... And you're like, well, you as a writer just realised that if you phone the police, this whole... <laughs> this whole mess will be quickly resolved and you're having to put in a thought where he dismisses it, but come, come on, right? And, 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 and I would say like, because again, like people here, writers, and I think, you know, even as a writer, when I say, you know, talk about the characters doing something I didn't expect, I like internally like flinch and feel slightly vulnerable saying it because I feel like I'm being, I'm kind of swanning around saying, oh, my character's come to life, but actually, when I spoke to this uh, neuroscientist, Paul J. Zach, who studies, well, mainly his research has been into the action of uh, the neurotransmitter oxytocin in the brain and how it's released. But um, he's done MRI scans of people watching movies uh, and has, you know, a lot of his work is showing that um, there is no, at the moment, we are not able to distinguish between the brain of somebody experiencing a real experience and somebody experiencing something in a movie or fiction, right? Like there's neuro, like neurophysically, there's, there's no distinction. The same parts are activated, the same things are happening. Um, oxytocin is released if you watch a, if you watch a short video about a guy talking about his terminally ill son that will release oxytocin. You are then, and it has effects after the watching it that you're 80% more likely to give money to charity, even if it's unrelated to what you watched, if that narrative stimulated oxytocin. So this idea of like the characters do something we weren't expecting, well, here's the, bo here's the bottom line. Um, they cannot, they, they, the, these, the brain cannot distinguish after a certain point between a character that you've read, that you've imagined thoroughly day after day as a writer and somebody that you knew who exists in your memory. Those two things are not held in distinct parts of the brain. The, a group in Hamburg who I'm hoping to speak to who've done MRI scans of writers as they write, right? As they create. I've found that a different part of the brain is activated in people who are not writers, who are just kind of like the control group of the street doing some creative writing, versus people who are part of a creative writing MA who write all the time. And the, the, the big difference is that the parts of the brain that tend to be stimulated um, by somebody who um, is uh, 
an experienced creative writer, are the same bits, they're like the visual cortex, they're the memory. They're experiencing the novel as a memory, as a thing that exists for them as something real. Now, I'm not saying we can't distinguish between the two things, but in the way that we are abusing um, hardware in the brain to create made-up stories. The brain wasn't created to tell stories. It was created so I can go and find a clean source of water and come back and go, right, so you go down the creek, you cross over this log that's across the old river that's fallen there now, and there's a bush with red berries on. The reason is because underneath there, there's a spring with fresh water. You can picture all those things, having never seen them before, and recreate my journey. But now, it's turned out I can go, and I went down there, and there's a log, and the log came to life, and inside it, there was, it just started um, shooting uh, fruit, pouring out the top of it, and you can imagine a thing, and we've discovered that you can have that experience, and also I can tell you those things, and I can say, and then there was, and then there was just abundant food all around, and you might have the you might have the um, cortisol release of stress. That's what makes you interested in the story. That's why we have Freitag's Pyramid of Rising and Falling a Action. Uh, attention is a me metabolically uh, costly thing to do. So we have to have falling action because otherwise our brains get tired, right? So you have to have ways out. But also I can then tell you about, you know, when you see the food, you might get a release of serotonin because it's, it's nice to imagine things like that. So writers, can't, they can distinguish between these things, but I think it's important for people to understand when we say characters took over the story or did something we didn't expect, that's because we spent enough time with them. I reckon the magic number is about 30,000 words for us to be able to have a fully working cognitive model of them in our head. Just in the same way I can go, oh, I think I'm gonna go and play Dungeons and Dragons tonight. I wonder if my mum would like to play and then I call up the like model I've got of my mum in my head and I imagine me asking her, do you want to play Dungeons and Dragons? And I go, no, because I know her, I've got some stored likes and dislikes and I can put my, my mother, sorry mum, but I can put her in different situations and I can stick her on a quad bike. I don't think she'd necessarily be enjoying that. Yeah. Um, or we can be watching TV and um, I bring her a cup of tea. Oh, she's quite enjoying that. Not wishing to paint her as too sort of unadventurous a character. She has been to more places in the world than me. The point being, you can abuse that software to create someone, who, where, someone who's never existed. And I think that's really exciting. Sorry, I went off on one there, but I think it's really, I think you made a really good point there that unless we kind of do the, these explorations, you are denying yourself the exquisite joy of like hacking this software and hardware we've got to do stuff it was never meant to do. Really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel sometimes that you're on a bit of a mission and you're not going to stop until all potential writers are actually writing. But that will be everyone because we all <laughs> have got this. I'm so, I'm very, very passionate about this. This idea that writers are born, not made makes me so cross. I think it's uh, I think it's often an argument that's that's put forward by I hear it you know actually the worst thing is the people I've heard it most from are kind of like editors in the publishing world and stuff like that. And they've got no evidence for it whatsoever. It's just a it's just the thing they go, oh you can't really teach creative writing. You can't teach creative writing. 
Um, you can't teach running. You can train someone to be a runner, though. And you can train someone to be a creative writer. But I feel like we're kind of splitting semantic hairs. Can someone, through education, get better at creative writing? Yes. Yet, demonstrably, I have. How, how do you think any... Nobody is this kind of like idiot savant who wakes up with a pen in their hand and can write. You can train the way of looking at the world. You can train the sensibility and you can train people. And there are certain principles of creative writing that people can learn. It's all teachable. And the only people who've got a vested interest in saying that it's otherwise are middle class people who would like to imagine that it's a kind of closed off aristocracy of people who inherited it through kind of blood or gift. Not true at all. And anyone who says that, they're, oh, I'm a writer and I didn't ever, no one taught me how to do it. You did, you read. You, you, you wrote, you had teachers. You, unless you are saying like you didn't go to school, you, you, you grew up on like a rock somewhere off the coast of Guernsey and you just taught yourself creative, you never encountered a story before. You were taught creative writing. And I just think there's so many people here, and the reason I get angry is because so many people then think, oh, writing's not for me, because I'm not a, I'm not a writer. And there's so many people who do write feel miserable because they feel like frauds, because they don't always find writing easy. And to consider yourself a writer, I think, is to, like, fatally uh, constrain your own sense of your humanity. We're people, and sometimes we write, and we shouldn't get so precious about it, and anyone can write, and I've seen people, and I've seen people over a week have breakthroughs and produce stuff that just makes me punch the air, and I'm like, that kicks ass. That's really good, and you learn that through turning up in an environment and practicing and training and trying different stuff out. But every, we've all got, we're all able to kind of like communicate. People form narratives all the time when they tell an anecdote, even if it's just about the pigeon that attacked them on the way to the shop, right? Like people can do it and then they get in their own way. Um, and I'm not suggesting that this kind of, I'm not suggesting this kind of like ridiculous kind of like nativism position either that we have to just get out of our own way and when we're kind of like natural we'll finally be able to write of course there's principles and we can look at other writers and we can learn from each other we can stand on the shoulders of giants and we can practice stuff and we can train can you teach creative writing i can't if you if the model someone's proposing is can you just like verbally instruct me over an hour's lecture and then i can suddenly write an entire novel no you have to come with me a little bit you have to do some writing yourself but I can steer you and I can set up the goalposts and I can set up the cones for you to do like drills around kicking a football. Um, but you're going to be one tearing those muscles and making them better. But you are learning and anyone and anyone can do that. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit. I think we've covered some of this just through you being... I think we've covered a bit of everything because that's, <laughs> yeah. that's how my brain works. Exactly. Um, but like your enthusiasm kind of answers the question anyway, but you don't make any money from any of this stuff. So <laughs> the podcast and this new newsletter thing you're doing, um, you know, some writers put out a course and charge £800 for someone to do it. Um, you, like you say, this has never been a business plan as such, but it does feel like a very deliberate thing now that you put this stuff out for free? I just think, so I should make it clear, I think people who teach creative writing professionally deserve to be paid. I'm not, for a second, 
set like proposing like a race to the bottom where artists don't get paid for their time for their expertise for working hard supporting other writers um i i wouldn't want to i really wouldn't want to sound like i'm saying that or say it because i think it would be idiotic however it is important to me that if we're going to get good stories and this is purely on a selfish level i want to i want us to have a great literature ecosystem where people can people can write where there's an abundance of I'm, I'm good bail out this metaphor early but I guess like the food in this is resources and support and there's a place where people can sub thrive right and the more and, and most resources for learning creative writing are cost money and some of them cost a considerable amount of money not not all of them but i think there's this myth that people go the great thing about creative writing is all you need is a pen and a piece of paper it's so like the entry is so low well that is true but i think about all the things i've benefited from in my life going going to university doing the ma at the university of east anglia going to the um to do a week's retreat at Arvin when I was younger, um, doing writing workshops, all these sundry things that were made available to me um, but cost money. It's just easy. And some things to do with kind of like middle class sort of like networks of people as well. But um, it it's just occurs to me how much people just take for granted has been made available to them either because of cultural capital or because of actual just money that they can throw. And I should say, like, I grew up in, like, in Poison, not knowing any writers at all. You know, I didn't come from this, like, affluent, like, London background where I knew... I, I had to find these people. But I've still had support over the years. And I just... Why... I just want to help people. I, and I just care about it. And... Um, I'm not suggesting that any kind of like writer who engages with commerce or has ways to like feed their children that we should just hold our nose and not engage with it at all and I'm not meaning to say that I'm like above it um I think there's two things going on one I'm not very good at monetizing things <laughs> um which just happens to benefit other people I I I just I'm not I, I don't feel particularly entitled to do it. I, I don't really want to. I don't want... Also, like, it's really hassle-free. Like, uh, if someone comes back to me because your course is diabolically badly put together, I don't actually... I can say, well, sorry, I did my best, and that's it. Like, I don't actually have any responsibility to them. And that's really freed me up. Like, I'm doing all this on spec, so I really get to... I got to take it... I get to take more risks more creative risks than anyone else doing it because i don't have to sell the course to anyone i go it's going to be here take it or leave it and it's actually given me this wonderful creative freedom now that wasn't by design that's just by accident but it means i get to do these courses that i wanted like you know what i wrote it for me i've been struggling with writing so much and the part of writing it was about me reteaching myself why i would ever want to turn up to a computer and write and on that level it's been a roaring success and I love writing
sweating now so much. I'm having such a blast. And I could not have said that 18 months ago. I was really, really finding it hard work. And for me, I'm not making any money out of it. Neither is it a particularly good promotional tool for me, not for the amount of time I put in. Of course, people find my work through it. And of course, people listen to the podcast and sometimes buy my books. But it's not a good time in, money out. It's not a good exchange. But that isn't what life's about, is it? Like, the, life is about us being human beings and helping each other and in getting them, sucking the marrow out of life and just enjoying it as much as we can. And I'm having so much fun and... I love writing and I I kind of have a faith that things will sort of work themselves out and I'll sort stuff out. And it has been really hairy financially quite a few times, but stuff comes up and people are amazing. And there's just two, there's, I, 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 you know, I think there's a place for sort of paid creative writing pedagogy, but I don't, I just don't agree with this idea that all the best stuff should be behind a paywall and that's just tough because it just perpetuates inequality in the, in the scene, in the literature world. And that just means books suffer, because it's not a meritocracy then. It's an aristocracy. It's who's got the most money. It's who can pay their way through to get the support they need. And what will happen if we don't support people from all different backgrounds writing books and writing stories? Don't think the scene's too big to die. Like, you only have to look at contemporary page poetry and the vanishingly small page audience for that to see what happens when you've got a scene that is largely catering towards the needs of an older, middle-class, paying audience, which is that at some point, there's not, they're not, it, not enough people are writing it for it to sell enough to be sustainable. And, 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 you know, and the thing is that writing at the moment is just bypassing a load of stuff with self-publishing stuff, with e-books. You know, I've got, uh, I, you know, people know that I've got some problems with Amazon as a company. I think it's a shame that kind of Kindle has got such a sort of um, monopoly on the e-book market. But e-books has a phenomenon that I think are so, so great for writing. They're just so, so wonderful. And in terms of sustainability in the environment um, as well, but um, they're fantastic and they're accessible and they allow people to circumvent some of the old, uh, I think, well-meaning, but ultimately stifling uh, gatekeepers of publishing. And I think the same needs to be done to creative writing, teaching and pedagogy. We need to be sharing this stuff and people... Because all it's going to do is mean a load more people feel happier, write more, write more books and better book, and more, there'll be a greater pool of books to choose from and we will all have a lovely time reading. You think about, you know, think about Tolkien since we were t- talking about that earlier and people have been mentioning it to me. People, I did a, this thread on Twitter about Tolkien and um, just me talking about how... I think some of his stuff is great. It's become quite a bit popular to kind of bash him, uh, especially in contemporary fantasy, which is what I write. Uh, But I think he wrote and he put loads of effort in and he took it deadly seriously. Um, And somebody mentioned, yeah, but he was, you know, we don't all have, we're not all tenured professors 
who have somebody to do our housework and look after our kids. And I think some people, and then some people would step in to defend Tolkien and say, oh, well, you know, he was working really hard and he let his kids into his room. But the point still stands, right? How many, as much as I love Tolkien's work and think he worked really hard, how many great epics like that and amazing stories and worlds do we, have we lost because somebody didn't have the money, some people, somebody didn't have the support, somebody didn't feel that they were entitled to write the thing in their head which didn't look like anything that had come before. Um, somebody who didn't have childcare, somebody who didn't have the support of, you know, Tolkien had the inklings around him, he had, he had C.S. Lewis as like, a, <laughs> as like a beta reader, right? Like, we need to find ways of connecting people because just everybody benefits from that. And it's going to make some other human beings happier. We need to love each other and look after each other. I think that's why I care about it. That sounds fair to me. Um, I'd love it if you'd come back in and gone, I disagree completely. Yeah, you just gone with you <laughs> lying to him. You don't care at all. I heard what you said off air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the other thing that got announced last year uh, is the Ice House, mm. uh, which is coming out in May this year. Um, and uh, you tweeted something which mm. caught my eye. Um, you do that quite a lot, actually. But uh, this particular one, uh, you said, uh, it has a locked room mystery, battle nuns, romance, immortal aristocrats, and ancient sunken horrors. Does that sound like your kind of thing? Mm. And I thought, yes. I think I ended up tweeting that because... So I'm published with Canongate, who is an amazing uh, Scottish publisher, who tend... Their list tends to be more literary. They do publish non-fiction as well, but tends to be kind of like cool, but like literary fiction is their kind of uh, wheelhouse. And I'm writing fantasy. And... So a lot of their way that they pitched the honours, which is my first novel, which is set in 1935, and it's uh, a kind of, I guess, like kind of gothic mystery in Norfolk in this old country house with a 13-year-old girl called Delphine who goes there and finds like a secret society or operating, operating there and parents are being drawn into it and there's secret tunnels in the house and underneath the grounds and she kind of teams up with the estates gamekeeper and she thinks something's going on so they were like very quick to like play up the literary aspects of the book um and the same with the ice house you know they, it's a story about an old lady uh in her she's 86 called delphine it's the same delphine from the honors uh who more or less thinks that her life is over, uh, is kind of in retirement and just kind of pottering about. It's getting a bit harder to look after her garden. Um, but more or less thinks that like her life is through and then she kind of gets pulled out of retirement for one last job. And I was very, I felt like I couldn't say that it's fantasy, not because my I don't think my publishers have given me an instruction not to do that, but just I felt like it wasn't a done thing if I wanted to be considered for the kind of like literary pride. This is why I hate awards culture. I just <laughs> felt like I just had got it into my head that it that wasn't cool to be. And I just had like a moment on Twitter where I didn't burst it. Come I, I wrote it for these reasons. It's got 
it's got like some martial arts in it. It's got fights. It's got guns. It's got dungeon crawls. It's got monsters. It's got uh, immortal aristocrats. It's got uh, portals and death and love and giant sentient scarabs and um, secret jungle testing facilities and uh, an angel and just all the good stuff and political intrigue that goes over centuries and a 400 year old field medic pathologist who wants to kill God and and it's, but it's not wacky either. It's not a book. I know there's people hear that and they think you just lost your mind. It must be a mess. But actually, really, it's just a book about getting older and the fear of death and realising the world's going to go on without you and how you deal with this world that's kind of crumbling around your ears and how we mustn't... And death taboos in society as well. How we That's kind of Delphine's thing I think at the beginning of the book is he's saying we mustn't make a fuss we mustn't say any of this stuff I was particularly interested in my grandmother before she died um, just talked about you know she was disabled she found it difficult to walk but she'd also walked across half of Germany during the second world war at the end of the second world war after the hospital she was in the nuns who ran it abandoned it um, she went on this big odyssey to get home into through what is now Poland and she was a child in Germany during the rise of the Nazis she told me about her going to uh, on a school trip and them passing like Auschwitz station and stuff and this stuff that now doesn't seem real to a lot of people, but was just as real as when I walk out of here and walk down that street, the reality was like bombed out streets and crossing borders with guys with machine guns. And that is people's reality now. And I just feel like sometimes for me, fantasy, as Tolkien could only really write about his experience of World War One through the this English myth that he creates where somebody heads off into the muck and the dirt with his best friend um, in a world that is this mechanised hell that is collapsing around his ears in the way that he could only really express the trauma of that. And also a story, as with in The Hobbit and in Lord of the Rings, that a lot of it is like, is like men like fumbly, fumblingly experiencing affection towards each other and loving each other and the dear, dear intense relationships between between men that he just struggled, you know, it just wasn't expressed very well and fantasy became a place where all of that could exist and I feel like the Ice House, for me, is like this story that's just about, it's just about a delphine, right? And she goes on an adventure, that's it, like it's real simple. And there's all this kind of blah, 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 blah around it. But really it's about, it's just a kind of story about love and about our friends and 
who you can save and who you can take with you and about how life when you think it's when you think you've got it sorted out it will change and something new will happen i think those all those things are really interesting to me so that's a really long-winded way of, of saying i'm still speaking to my publishers about the, my elevator pitch for it um it's <laughs> i mean it is and it is kind of like an epic as well it's like really big so um that's why sometimes i kind of go off on one about it because it's just i've been it's been with me a long time and yeah. i think like when you're down into the book it's just like this character has this problem goes here da, da, da. but it's 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 about so much more i don't mean it like that but i just think it's a book that i that i had to grow with and i've been on a long journey with myself and um i'm very very happy with where it is now uh it's going to take a while for me to step back and kind of figure out what I think about it, you know? <laughs> How closely connected are the two books? Because you've got Delphine as this kind of character that links them. Are they, are the, the stories and themes connected? Yeah, I mean, like, so the ice, you don't have to have read The Honours to read The Ice House, but it's the same character. Um, and there are things in The Honours that are paid off from in the ice house i also think reading the ice house it changes some things you will have i mean i'm sorry to be so vague because <laughs> but it changes some things that i suppose would have been assumptions in the honors it clarifies some things and also there's some reveals and some things that you go oh oh well then that means and you'd want to go back and read the honors to kind of understand but essentially any questions that anyone had left over from the honours are answered in the ice house. Absolutely. There's no, there's no kind of like carrying on or being coy. Everything that was left unanswered in the honours is answered in the ice house. And I just kind of threw the kitchen sink at it. I think everything that I ever thought I'd like be coy or hold back on or save for like a third book, I was like, let's just have it now and have these and... and all sorts of different, you know, jungle, alpine adventures. It's kind of like a like I've designed like a, a Sonic game or something. <laughs> like I feel like the number of and also because I'm making people ask where you get your ideas from. And I'm actually incredibly uninventive. Like people are like, why have you written a bit? You, there's a whole bit set in the jungle, and it's like, why did you decide to write about the jungle? And it's just like, well, I was about to start writing the book, and I did, and then I went to the jungle. <laughs> I was just in the jungle and I was like, I'd, I just went to Borneo and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just watch this. I just very consciously was in the jungle, was literally walking through the jungle. It's so dumb. I was literally walking through the jungle and went, oh, I'll use this as a book. And then just watched and then came back and wrote it down. It's so uninspired, but it was really useful because I, and it was and then you can't really tell that in the book because it's just the jungle. It's just like, what, what did I think I was going to see? There's not really any great revelation. It was hot and there was trees. <laughs> how, how different was the experience of writing it? Because the honours you wrote before you started doing uh, Death of a Thousand Cuts, uh, you've kind of grown this audience around you during the process. And like you were saying, a lot of the, the podcast stuff you've put out and the blogging, has helped other people, but it's also kind of helped you with your own relationship with writing. So how did that kind of interface with the ice house as you were working through that? 
writing the ice house was hellishly difficult i think i started writing it in 2014 before the honors came out in edinburgh actually while i was doing the edinburgh festival and i was I mean, I was flying at one point. I was just like writing 10,000, 12,000, 14,000 words a week, just like hammering through it, having a great time. Then I got the flu at the beginning of February in 2015, and I was knocked out for th three weeks to stop me writing. And then beginning of April, uh, the honours came out. And I just ground to a halt, partly to do with like schedule. You go and do book readings and stuff like that. But also... The, the thing that gave me the worst writer's block was having some good reviews. Having some people write about the honours and going, I think this is great, this is terrific, not read anything like this before. I just was like, oh no. And then you look at your first draft and you go, oh no. Because <laughs> one, I just didn't want to write like a sequel to the honours or like a book that came after the honours that was like, the continuing adventures of Delphine. Well, well her friends, because I think everyone expected me that my next book, the one was set in 935, everyone, including I think my agent and publisher, were like, oh, the next book's going to be in World War II, right? You're going to write, <laughs> you're going to work, you're going to write a diesel punk fantasy. And then I was like, uh, the next one is set in the extremely exciting year of 2009. <laughs> and people were like, oh, Oh, that's interesting in a way that feels extremely ambivalent. And so I was like, oh, they're gonna hate this next thing. And I just, ah, oh, I just had such procrastination on writer's block and guilt. And various things happened in my, my life, good and bad. We had like a couple of family bereavements, but also like my daughter was born, which is a trauma in itself in terms of how it changes your life. I don't mean to say it's not been the best experience of my entire life, it has. But it's also very tiring and very time-consuming. And all of those things just, like, started to really... I really hit some lows with the writing of the book. And at one point, it was, like, quarter of a million words as well. And then we... we don't worry, I'm not a monster. We edited it down. <laughs> my, I sent the first draft to my agent. And I'm sure you won't mind me saying this, because the kind of, like... the. The idiot in this situation is me, but I sent her it and she looked and I got an email back and so I finished the book and I sent it to her, okay, can you have a look? And I got an email back and like five minutes later it just said, is that the word count? And I sent one of them back and said yes and then I got a one word email back that said eek. <laughs> <laughs> and um, suffice to say I have Thoroughly, thoroughly cut it down. <laughs> about cut it down by about fifty percent, um, and that and it's, it's better. But um, it just was. There was just. I just wanted to write about everything, and I was going into this world, and I had to research and build this entire world and this entire mythology, and then not make the reader sit through that, but just have that inform the actual story I wanted to tell. <laughs> so that all this kind of world-building stuff, where you're just kind of like giving a Wikipedia page, that comes out. So there's all these bits of the, the hundreds of thousands of words of research and notes I've done in the world, bits of that poke out in the story, but the actual story itself, you only see those things when they're relevant. So you don't see the pantheon of 50 gods, but somebody might be wearing a little trinket that has one of them <laughs> 
on it briefly so you glimpse those things but I did all that world building and really went over the top I can't, remember um, who, I can't remember who I read it. Someone, I saw it recently. Someone said that world building should be like when you cook with chilli and that it should be like a little, little hint of chilli. But if it overwhelms the whole meal, then no one's going to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I like, worked. Yeah, it's true. And I think... So I do think there's some been really, really good points made by... Uh, I can't... By sort of write, some writers of colour pointing out that... Um, you've got that it's easy to not to be light on world building if you're working in a kind of like dominant kind of like western european paradigm and you don't really have to explain if, if people know what goblins and orcs are and horses and i mean everyone knows what horses are but you know like if there's a bunch of stuff that you or you're just in fantasy land you can actually move quite quickly if you don't know what various if there's various types of like say food that don't really have a clear translation into english and you're having to use say like a chinese name for it um if there's traditions or like cultural assumptions that aren't going to be the diff the default you might have to stop and do stuff that looks a bit more like world building or certainly there's a bigger challenge um i think still you can reveal stuff through what happens in the story but um, I, I, I'm sort of I'm, I'm wary of saying like world building is a bad, and also because I sometimes love a, a novel that you know like um, Zoo City by Lauren Bierkes like has this great has this great device. Of, it's a world where you like basically everyone. If you've done something, if you do a murder or something really bad like dark shadows just like rise up off the walls and go to consume you. But before it happens, um, suddenly a little like animal avatar will appear and the shadows go away. You'll get a very small like magic power, like the ability to kind of like mind read or um, maybe briefly sort of turn invisible or something. Um, but if that animal is ever killed, then all the shadows come and drag you down, presumably to hell or somewhere. And this only starts happening in our contemporary world in like 2007. It, they just, it just suddenly starts happening. Um, and in between each chapter, she just has world building, which is like, there's like an IMDB review of like a um, Afghan warlord who's got a penguin in a bulletproof jacket that follows him around everywhere. And it's really cool. And it just like tells you about the documentary. Um, there's someone who's written an essay about Philip Pullman's Northern Lights in light of the fact that since the book came out, people appear to be having like demons like uh, following them around and go, how do we reinterpret these books since they appear to predict this is it but you just get hints of all these bits of world building and it's really cool so i think world building can happen it can happen in loads of uh, interesting ways with found texts and all sorts of things um it's just that like a lot of mine wasn't very interesting or good and that's why it needed to come out <laughs> it was useful for me but it wasn't useful for everyone else and yes yeah, uh, may is the release date yeah may the second the ice house is coming out from canongate in hardback yeah, it is fantasy, but it's not like it's not like orcs and goblins fantasy, which I love, by the way. I'm not I'm not distancing myself from it because I somehow think I'm better than that. I love old school fantasy to death. Absolutely, think it's wonderful, but it's um, weirder than that. I was just wondering, what is next? 
because the Ice House was this kind of long process. It's now about to come out. Uh, you've got the podcast and the, the version two of Catch to 80K. Uh, what else are you working on in 2019? Well, um, I'm glad you asked. I, at the moment, I mean, I, I've got this work in progress that I'm just sort of mucking about with. Goodness knows what's going to happen with it. But I'm about 50,000 words into a book with the working title. Actually, since we mentioned Orcs and Goblins, the working title is All Goblins Must Die. And at the moment, it's a story about a, an enclave of anarchist, in the conventional sense of anarchist, uh, ref, war refugees who just happen to be goblins um, living in this big floating city. Um, above the city in this big uh, in this big black tower that rises above the city called Nightstack and the goblins all live there and they are being slowly they are being a new kind of like a guard captain has started a series of extremely popular raids on what he calls goblin nests in the city um, seeing them as kind of like a, an advance force for a war that's happening in the west uh, and so it's, it follows a group of four goblins, basically, who, you know, admittedly do various heists and raids on uh, different government businesses to get by, but really about what happens when um, it becomes apparent that they might be the only thing that can save the city from itself. It's a very, very fun yarn and adventure, but I'm really enjoying. I'm really enjoying writing it. They're just so much fun, and they keep getting into trouble. And that thing of like characters just taking over the story. I'm very much just setting it up so I put them in situations and then watch how they try to deal <laughs> with it. Given that they've got no money, uh, can't, uh, and they're vastly outclassed and outresourced, how they actually deal with that is really exciting. And it, the, like, the tone of a lot of it is so silly, but I think these things allow you to sort of, they give us secret access to the kind of like deep and secret wells of our hearts. And especially when something's funny, it, um, it, it, we drop a lot of our defences. And I think, that's I think that's where the good stuff is happening for me. So yeah, um, All Goblins Must Die is, is its name at the moment. And I'm really, really enjoying writing it. Excellent. You said, uh, I think you said something like the story at the moment is that so when you write do you very much make a point of keeping it open to changing i mean so this is a weird one in that i actually did i was writing two other i've written i'm working on two other novels again like this has been kind of wild for me because of all the stuff i've learned from speaking to other authors from having this water cooler for the first time where i get to chat to other authors and go how's your week been and they go, oh, God, it's been really... And I, I just haven't had that. You know, it's a really lonely profession, doing, being a novelist. But I get to speak to people now, and I realise people I, you know, as much as I may suffer from self-loathing, people I really love and respect um, have the same issues. And then I'm like, well, it's not just... Me. Oh, I might be an all right person. So, I, I, but I, I had the brief flicker of, an, of a thought of, what, of a character for all goblins must die. And then I was like, oh God, I'll, just write, I'll write down the, the idea for it so I can then just dump it in a cupboard somewhere and get on with what I'm supposed to be writing. But I wrote it down and I was like, oh God, 
quite fancy just trying out that voice and seeing what the person sounds like when I put them on the page. And because I do creative writing exercises for myself, I do 10, these 10 minute free writes every day. I do these things and just, just for fun, I was like, oh, I'll just stick it in there and I'll just write for 10 minutes in the voice. And because I time limited it to 10 minutes, I didn't feel like I was starting a thing. I was just doing a little, I was just doing a little sound test. And I quite enjoyed writing it. And I kept, I wanted to find out what happened next. And I've just kept writing it like that and it's been really fun. So actually I have had a, like a two page outline of some stuff I think happens. But a lot of it's vague. A lot of it is like has stuff like they escape, and I'm like, <laughs> and I get to that, and I go, "Our oh, cheers passed me." <laughs> like, how is that going to happen? Um, and maybe in some cases they don't. Like, it's clear that they won't be able to. But I then get to innovate and explore the world with them, and that is really exciting. But the thing that's the liberating thing about creative writing and not going asking yourself the question, am I doing this right? Which is what happened to me when I was writing my second novel. My first one came out, will people like this? I don't care. Like, I, I'm just like, what's in the next room? And that is such a compelling question to anyone really. Like I feel like you could do a creative writing exercise and you go, okay, someone opens, someone's running away from someone and they slip through a boarded up window into a room. What was this place? What, where do they find themselves? I feel like you could go around a table of people who don't even write and they would be able to come up with 10 answers and one of them would be really interesting. Mm. Like, I mean, people listening to this now, I know they'll be thinking of, like they'll be thinking of possibilities when someone goes through that window. And, that's the, and as soon as you get away from this thing that I was doing, which is like, what's the right answer? To like, what, what are three answers? You will always, always, always come up with something that surprises you. Excellent. Well, thank you, Tim, for coming in. Thank you for tolerating me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure. So um, if people want to find all this stuff that you do, both your books and the podcast, where, where's the best place for them to go? So the two key places, if they want to find the podcast, I reckon the best place to go is uh, www. We don't need to say www. I, do, I can't even say it. It makes me feel... Whoa, whoa, whoa. So... Um, soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Clare is where all the episodes of my creative writing podcast, Death of a Thousand Cuts, can be found. Um, I've also got my website, which is timclarepart.co.uk, uh, which is where you can just see what I'm up to, put my blog on there. And also um, there's a contact me link on there. So if people, uh, people can submit their first 250 words of, of their novel, um, I do critiques on my podcast as well, where I give feedback. Um, so yeah, my website, timclairpart.co.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash timclair are the best places. Or you can follow me on Twitter at timclairpoet. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I imagine quite a lot of people will be doing that after listening I, to this. Well, or, or they will be exercising their right to never <laughs> uh, hear me rant <laughs> uh, again. No, I appreciate it. And I, I, I just, you know, I'm not... I'm really, really grateful for the chance to talk about creative writing because I love it and I feel very fired up and excited now, so thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening and thanks to Tim for coming in. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast over on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening. If you have writer friends, please do let them know about us. 
Next week, we've got a workshop with literary agent Eve White. If you want to find out more about agents while eating cake, you can find out more about the Friday 8th of February event over on our website. We've also started to put up events that take place during half term, so if you're looking for writing-related activities, please do check those out. And of course, the famed Dragon Hall Salon returns on Tuesday the 12th of February to find out what happens when you put a bar and a collection of writers inside a 15th century hall for the evening. To make sure you're always the first to know about upcoming writing opportunities and events, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre, like us on our Facebook page and sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Thanks again, keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.